0: I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a show about conversation, community, and the people that bring community to life. Today's show is part of a series featuring the work of RISE, an innovative re-entry program serving in Nebraska prisons and communities. Listeners will recall my conversation with Jeremy Bowman in October 2017, when he led what was then Defy Ventures, Nebraska. My guests today are Jeremy Bowman, David Kaczynski, Jason Kotas, and Keith Wheel, all working with or for RISE. Jeremy Bowman currently serves as the founder and CEO of RISE. Prior to joining RISE, he served as the Associate Vice President of Development at Creighton University. Jeremy is a New York City native and has lived in Omaha for the past 10 years. David Kaczynski is the founder of Reentry Resources a business that takes pride in providing housing to formerly incarcerated individuals as one of the first steps in beginning their new lives. David is also working to become a certified life and business coach to further assist the formerly incarcerated and anyone that may be facing crisis. Previously, he worked in the sales and management field for nearly 17 years and is a proud husband and father to four children. Jason Kotas has worked for RISE since January 2018 and is their first ever re-entry specialist. Jason is a graduate from the first cohort of the RISE program at Omaha Correctional Center. A few years ago, Jason thought his time had come and gone to ever live a life that was meaningful and fulfilling. Now he has risen up out of the ashes that were once his reality and is dedicated to helping others rise up out of their own. Keith Wheel currently serves RISE as a program coordinator. Keith is a graduate of RISE and has served three years in a correctional facility. While incarcerated, he has never allowed his sentencing to lead into an institutionalized mindset. Keat tackles any obstacle he comes across and is more than happy to help his fellow staff members with anything they need. Jeremy, David, Jason, Keith, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us, Stuart. Jeremy, would you set the scene by telling us about the evolution of Rise to date?
1: Sure, so in uh, the fall of 2016, Defy Ventures, a national reentry organization, launched in Nebraska. It was the third state to have the program. And we have grown and expanded the program in the state from two facilities to now we're serving in seven of the Nebraska prisons. And we do an inside out program where we're also doing case management and reentry support for our graduates upon release. In May of 2017, the founder of Defy Ventures resigned. The national organization went through some different challenges. There were a number of staff that were laid off. We were growing here and the program was going very well. And our funders and our staff and board felt like the best thing for us to do would be to chart our own course. And so we decided to file for our own 501c3, and go through a rebranding process which uh, was a name change included in that and so today our name is Rise and we have also created our own intellectual property so we have our own curriculum here that we're using and all of the facilities that we serve. The curriculum is still rooted in character development, intensive character development, job readiness and entrepreneurship. We've added some elements that were not a part of the Defy curriculum that we thought were holistic in nature and very important. So there are some courses that we've added from the Prison Mindfulness Institute, some different mindfulness exercises and ways to just create space in prison when none exists during those moments of high conflict. We're bringing in entrepreneurship curriculum from the National Federation for Teaching Entrepreneurship. We're also making our program strengths-based. So we're using the Gallup StrengthsFinder tool as well as the Builder Profile 10 assessment so that our participants can really begin to learn what their strengths are and we can focus on those. And so we're weaving that throughout the curriculum.
0: What is the broader social context in which you're working? So there are numbers of those incarcerated. There are the legislative, judicial, social policies that maybe inform how, uh, how you go about your work and the spaces within which you work. And then there are the challenges that we bake into the system for people either entering a correctional facility or reentering back into community. So would you be able to paint a broader context for us?
1: Sure. So the broader context is that Nebraska is currently the second most overcrowded prison system in the country, we just topped off an all-time high in terms of incarceration numbers this past week. There's over 5,500 people in our state prisons. We're at about 163% of capacity, which is an, an emergency. So so that's one component of it. We're in the top 10 in use of solitary confinement in the country, and that continues to be a, a big challenge for our system overall. And just based on staffing, there's not the amount of case management needed to do reentry and rehabilitation planning. And so that's where RISE steps in, where we're working on a 20-page reentry plan with our participants. We're providing a lot of hope in a a pretty hopeless context right now, where the overcrowding issues really affect the population in, in all kinds of ways. We're working in a system that's understaffed to a pretty large extent, which has other effects in terms of lack of programming. If you can't staff them, um, controlled movement in the facilities, and so we're trying to bring some rehabilitation and reentry planning. We're also trying to bring some hope and confidence into what it what's a pretty dark place.
0: How is it going with your? ability to influence and work with partners at an institutional level that perhaps heretofore have not demonstrated much of a willingness to make any significant changes in in the quality and the potential outcomes for this kind of system?
1: The good news right now is we have a very supportive corrections director. Director Frakes really supports our program. The wardens and staff sponsors at the facilities, they're grateful that we can bring this service in. And we're seeing that not just rise, but there's other programs that are being allowed into the facilities. We had a really long time here in Nebraska where there just wasn't any programming. And so if you have no programming in a lot of ways, there's too much time that's just wasted, there's not a lot of hope. And and that creates violence, that creates all kinds of other challenges within facilities. So we have, we have a good partner in the system here. And when you look at the number, we're overcrowded, but the number is not so unwieldy that we can't begin to get our arms around it. And so within our first two years here, we've served about 11% of the Nebraska prison population with about 7% that have now graduated our program. Uh, So we have 240 program graduates at this point. We have about 40 that are back home that have returned to the community either on mandatory release or parole supervision. 90% of them are employed. We've had no new offenses. We've had a couple of parole violations. But by and large, we're seeing early returns that what we're doing in this community that we're building is, is really working.
0: Earlier, you just mentioned that the phrase around, it's going well. So it's been two, three years now. So you've just given some really interesting data, I think, that suggests what going well means. In a year's time, what might you be hoping for?
1: So, right now, nationally, three out of four people that get out of prison, they reoffend and they go back within three years. In our state, we do a little better. It's about 32% will reoffend and go back in three years. So, we're hoping that as we continue to grow, the employment con- numbers continue to. Uh, stay stay pretty positive for our graduates. We've brought in almost 500 volunteers into Nebraska prisons in the first two years. And so they help prepare our participants for reentry, but that also changes the hearts and minds and prepares the community to accept them, to provide job opportunities and to change hiring decisions. So we see as we continue to grow more employment opportunities uh, through the businesses in the state, but also more of our graduates that are then able to pursue entrepreneurship and if they can't get a job, have that ability to create their own job. So we do have a business incubator for our post-release program, um, but the needs of people returning are, are pretty broad. We're focusing really closely on employment and job creation through entrepreneurship, but also partnering with organizations to provide the wraparound services we don't. That includes mental health or, or physical health, substance abuse support, and we're seeing one gap that is a challenge for everybody, and that's housing. There's just not enough transitional housing, not enough reentry beds. So with this year, we opened up our first transitional house in Omaha, and we see that as an area where we're going to continue to lean in and provide transitional housing for our graduates.
2: I go to bed But sleep won't come. Get up in the night I'm no, early in the morning, oh mercy, it's just the same situation, no, 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 came the landlord, yeah, just a knocking knock on my door, knocking, knockin' up on my door.
0: So, I'd like to turn to Jason and Keith and ask about Rise from the perspective of those pursuing the programming. And, Keith, in your bio, there's a reference to an institutionalized mindset. And what I want to do is just get a sense of what is your experience as you're in a system like the Nebraska Correctional System. And then I want to use that as a context for how you encountered the programming that you went through as, as graduates and, and then how that's informed what you do now. So let's start perhaps with key. If you, if you wouldn't mind, what do you mean by an institutionalized mindset?
3: Well, what I meant by institutionalized mindset was that being in I started off at NSP, Nebraska State Penitentiary. That's where I spent a year there. So there's a lot of people that have an institutionalized mindset that have been there for years, and those rub off on everybody else that come in, new, young um, guys that are who raised the wrong way. They use they usually lead lead you through, through violence, they teach you this path is the right way, they teach you that there isn't necessarily a, another path for you to take. So your mind is pretty much caged in into living in this type of lifestyle. And that's really, <laughs> that's really what I mean by institutionalized mindset that there is another path that I could take and not being held down, not being caged in.
0: Is that a description? I see you nodding, Jason. Is that a description that feels familiar to you, too?
3: Absolutely.
4: Um, I've done a total of about 15 years in correctional facilities. Um, Not all at once, but different parts of my life. And for a big part of my life, I had this mentality of, like, us against them, like, if I'm inside and I, and I, and I'm, I'm an inmate on a prison yard, then I automatically have to treat staff a certain way. And I have to look at staff a certain way and I have to look at everybody else a certain way. There's, there's like this division here and it took a lot, it took a lot of unnecessary, but now that I look back at it, it was necessary suffering in my own life before I would have that honest conversation with myself, um, and to understand that we're all humans and it doesn't matter what side of a fence I lay my head at night. It doesn't matter what kind of clothes I wear. None of that matters. What matters is um, what I allow to be put into my own heart. And I had a lot of stuff in there, what I believed about being a man that was wrong. And I got involved in some things. And then I got involved when we were defy before we switched over to rise. And I was, I graduated from the first cohort and I've, I've used this last time I was in, I used it as a platform to start getting rid of that institutionalized mindset and those beliefs that were stopping me from being the person that I was designed to be.
0: So with that context, uh, how did you come across what was maybe then Defy Ventures, but, but now is Rise? How did you come across that program and what made you think, I want to opt in to engage in this program? What made you think you wanted to do that, and what were you expecting from the program?
3: How I came across Defy was that there were there's some really good guys in prison. There's some guys that see the future and see potential inside of you, and they saw that inside of me. They, uh, there was a, there, I took the second cohort in NSP. The guys that were in the first cohort were kind of like mentors to me. They were like my older brothers. They, they taught me a lot of knowledge and showed me the right path to take because I was still young. I was one of the youngest that took it in cohort two. They, they seen the potential, and they were like, you're, you don't, you're not supposed to go down this path because there's a lot of things you could change in the, in the facility and in the outside world. So they kind of coached me and mentored me and guided me through the whole program.
4: I got involved with the first cohort at OCC, And I was already on a path to where I was, I was working a program of recovery and I'd been involved in some other things. And this just felt like the next thing I was led into. Um, But if I would have gotten my way and gotten, if the parole board would have given me a two-year final hearing like I thought I needed, then I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you right now. Um, They told me to come back in another year. And that meant that I, I, my time structure was still too far out to go to work release. And for a few weeks, I was—I felt a certain way about that. And then um, here comes Jeremy and this program. Then I'm like, okay, now I see this is exactly where I'm supposed to be. This is what I'm supposed to be doing. So it was I, I'm, I'm sitting here today because um, I decided to start walking my life out in faith about five and a half years ago.
0: So then tell me, uh, you started the program, and uh, tell me about what impact it had upon you as you went through it.
4: So the impact it had on me um, was it took it took the life that I was already living, um, a spiritual life, uh, a, a God-centered life. And even though a program is not spiritually based or God-centered based, that's just where I was in my walk. And it took everything that I had, learned in these other platforms and it got me to take it to peel another layer out to go a little deeper and to really look at um, a little more closely about my self-limiting beliefs and and it got some more things out into the light and it really opened me up to embrace this new life that I was living. Um, What I mean by that is I hid behind a lot of masks for a big chunk of my life. Um, I'm I'm 45 now, and and I didn't really grow up until I was about 40. Um, I was I was I was self-centered. I was um, selfish. I I was I was everything. I took the world personal. I made everything about me. When I started changing and becoming embracing this servant that I believe I was designed to be. I went from one extreme to the next. I went from this selfish person all the way over here to very um, selfless. And when I got involved with RISE, it was an opportunity for For growth in the area of, I can, I can still be proud of myself and not be egotistical and arrogant about it. I can still have my heart in the right place and feel good about how I'm living my life. And I can embrace these opportunities and these blessings that are coming around because nothing's been given to me. I've, 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 I've put some skin in the game. I've taken responsibility for my own life and it's okay to reap some fruit from that. That is good.
0: So now you have returned to the community and you're working with RISE as a reentry specialist. What does that mean in terms of what you do and what are some of the obstacles that you're helping people to get around? The
4: obstacles um, are I can see other people's needs. I can see when they're not being honest with themselves and I can even call them out on it because I've lived it. I know what it is to to be playing game and to not be honest with yourself about certain situations. I can, I can see it and I can call people out on it, which I think is, is a benefit. But just because I, I have that ability doesn't mean that they're, they're going to get honest about it. Um, so that's, that's really, you know, we have Jeremy mentioned that there's all these external challenges with, with employment, with housing, with, communities accepting you back those are you know we can influence those but but we we don't you know we can't just there isn't just one thing that's just going to fix it but really that inside work that making sure that you're focused on the right things and you're doing things for the right reasons and you have that and care that character and that integrity and that that um the humility and the gratitude that i know from experience without makes life a lot harder than it needs to be Um, those things challenge me on a daily basis Um, makes my heart hurt when i see people that just aren't quite ready yet and then on the flip side of that it is so amazing to see the light come on in people's eyes and you know that man they're getting it and and to be a part of that um it humbles me it humbles me regularly
0: let me, let me catch you up with this then, and, and so tell me about your experience going through the program and what you were hoping to get from it.
3: At first it was very difficult because at that point in time I was at the stage of my life where I wanted to change but didn't know how to change. I, wanted to, I, I knew there was other paths for me to take, there was other doors opening for me to gain this type of knowledge. When I first got into prison, I knew, like, you know, my parents used to— my mom used to always tell me that if I live this type of way, if I continue down this path, that I was going to end up in prison. Well, when I was in prison, I was like, I'm here now. <laughs> so I knew I was at rock bottom, and I knew if I continued that mindset that I was going to be here for a lot longer. So I knew there was— I was what I was going to do with my time was change that, change that whole mindset, just change that whole structure. And figuring out how to do it was difficult until Rise came about, and I was just like, maybe it is God's plan that it's this came at this specific time, and I was going to be done with the program right when I was going to be going to work release. So it was like <laughs> it was God calling and telling me that, Now that I'm ready, because I've been reading a whole bunch of different books and I was trying to heighten my vocabulary and I knew I wanted to start a business, but I didn't know how to do that or want to work for Rise and help people. And I didn't know how to do that as well. I didn't know how to change people's mindsets on the yard because like no one knew me. So why would they listen to someone that they don't know unless you unless you're just like the. Shot caller or the, everybody put you in that position, but <laughs> it was it was rather difficult throughout the program because i i'd never i'm the type of person that doesn't necessarily ask for help because it's super difficult for me to ask for help because of my background and not necessarily having anyone in the household to go ask for help. I usually go by doing everything myself. So it was difficult for me to ask for help. But there were people that saw that it saw that weakness in me and was mentoring me and guiding me through. And I, I realized that that is a weakness of mine that I had to overcome and they helped me through it.
0: So you emerged as a returning citizen and RISE offered you a, a position
3: mm-hmm. within
0: the organization. Yes. So would you... Just tell me what that position is and and what is the nature of of what you do.
3: Well, I'm the computer program coordinator. So I work with computers and I do all of the data entry and work with a lot of people's return packs and go to events, help network. Um, I help some of my coworkers with event planning. I help some with the the re-entry and communicate with EITs or risers that come out. Builders, what well, we call them builders now, uh, help with really anything that I need to be helped with because I'm, I'm just a helpful person. It's not about me. It's about everyone else. So I try to do as much as possible. I am still at work release also. I'm not finished with my time yet. I will be, but I'm still at the Omaha Correctional Community Center and it's, um, It's a lot smaller than the actual facilities. There are people that transition into the community, and we're allowed—we're still in prison, but we're allowed to go to work, and that's when I was offered this position. It's a lot smaller environment, so now I I developed how to change people's mindsets in the community center and view me in a certain light to where people can walk the same path that I've walked because of people— knowing my previous background and seeing that if I could change, then everyone else could change as well.
0: Do you feel a burden, uh, a load that's on your shoulders? Because we're talking about changing some of the, we're talking about changing your lives. You're talking about changing the lives of other people that you meet coming through the program or returning uh, to the community. But society at large has a number of misunderstandings, sometimes stereotypes, maybe some antipathy to people that were formerly incarcerated coming back into the community. Do you feel this burden somehow that that you not only do the work you do, but you have to be a role model to change all of society's attitudes?
3: Yeah, at times I feel like it is kind of a burden because I'm supposed to, because there's a lot of people that value this program to where They view that I have to walk and talk a certain way, but in all actuality, in my mind, I want to be who I am because I know what path I want to walk through, and I want to be myself as I walk through that path and not anyone else because then it's not authentic. So I try to just be myself as much as possible and try to walk down this path to teach people they could be themselves and still accomplish what they want to accomplish. Look on right, the brighter side of life, you know? No more. Uh... Thinking, to to now,
1: don't you ever give up, don't you ever give in. Don't you ever give up, don't you ever give in. Don't you ever give up, don't you ever give in. We will love our <coughs> way someday, yeah. Don't you ever do this, cause it, cause I better you clean. You pink, silver, silver, some me, the green. Don't you ever give up, don't you ever give up? Don't you ever give up.
0: David, so please tell me about re-entry resources. Sure.
2: So re-entry resources, the idea, the idea for this came to me when I was incarcerated. Um, as Jeremy already mentioned, the number one problem that is facing people who are leaving correctional institutions back into the community is housing. So what I am working towards doing is having an organization that's going to assist with providing that housing for these individuals as they transition back into the community. So somewhat of a go-between between property owners and the the person that's incarcerated because that person, as they're reentering, they don't have the funds. They don't have a credit report, which a lot of times property owners and landlords will look at before renting to someone. And Until we can overcome that fixed mindset, it's just going to continue. So reentry resources is going to step in on behalf of that individual and say, we know that they don't have credit. We know that they don't have the income. We're here to assist them if you will allow them that opportunity.
0: So it it feels to me as if like, no duh, right? Right. It's like, (laughs) you know, this, why did it ever take... The need to create an organization like yours, when it was always going to be obvious that if you're leaving one situation to transfer to another, sure, there's always a, a transitional difficulty.
2: Sure, common sense isn't so common anymore. It it's it's a difficult question to answer, but that is the question that needs to be answered. Um, you know, as Jeremy talked about, recidivism is is extraordinarily high in our nation. We're fortunate that it's only at about. in this state, but that's a third of the population that reoffends. And studies show that every time that an individual moves after they've reentered the community, their likelihood of reoffending increases by like 75%. I think the last numbers I looked at were. So trying to just stabilize these individuals as they get back out and give them that opportunity the first time without having to shuffle them around knowing that the odds are going to be against them each time that they're that they're moved so i don't have the answer unfortunately as to why it wasn't done before but it makes total sense to me and so i'm going to do it
0: so you've talked about the funds necessary to establish one's footing mm-hmm. in new accommodation new housing and also things like credit reports, this sort of thing that may be lacking for people returning. What are some of the other obstacles that your organization is helping to navigate for people returning?
2: Sure. So really our focus is going to be the housing. That That's the primary focus. There's other organizations like RISE and and other – I can go down a list of, of organizations here in, in Omaha alone that are assisting in different functions providing Counseling that may be needed, 12 step programs, uh, job assistance, anything like that. So, I've begun the networking to know who to direct these people to once they come out. We're, we're going to provide them a, a base of operations, so to speak. So, we'll give them a home, which is the number one obstacle. And from that home, from that base of operations, begin to connect them to the other resources that are going to help them successfully transition back into the community.
0: What are some of the, I don't really want to use the word ignorant, but just, just some of the misperceptions, the kinds of knowledge and information that members of the general public, people people like me, just don't understand about what it's like for someone who is returning to the community. Mm-hmm. And we just think, well, you helped to get a job and then you rent somewhere and you, you just be a good citizen right isn't isn't that what you do
2: sure yeah how much time do we have there's a lot that i can go down (laughs) i've got some time all right uh yeah it, it is a a serious misconception that oh you're getting out of prison well why doesn't he have a place to live what's wrong and it it feeds into that vicious cycle there there's this perception with a lot of people in society who haven't gone through this or seen it from, from either perspective or had someone incarcerated or been incarcerated themselves to realize that it, it is almost a self-perpetuating machine that you get caught up in. And so the, the misconception in a lot of people's minds is that somehow or another, that individual that is leaving the correctional institution is less than or there's something wrong with them, or, well, they deserve that because they did such and such wrong. That misconception is there's no difference between you and me. The the only difference is I got caught. I guarantee you, you probably have done more than enough in your life to have ended up in the same situation that I was in, and then you would be the one going through these challenges of trying to find a job trying to find a home, not having a credit report, and on down the line.
0: What was your transition experience like having emerged out of, um, I don't know where you were, so. You...
2: Sure, no, that's, I was in four different institutions, okay. but the okay. last 11 months of my 17 months was in OCC, Omaha Correctional Center.
0: Okay, um, so so what was your transition period like then, since, since emerging from OCC?
2: Mm-hmm, sure, so I was very fortunate that uh, my wife stood by me through this entire process. She had a home. We, we, were, we were established as far as housing goes. It took her, and she has a, a clean record, so even with her trying to find a home and me still being incarcerated, it took her months. It, it was down to the wire within probably a month before I, I got out, uh, before she found something, and we are very fortunate in that aspect. Um, after that, it took a good three months before I had a job and that was putting my application out daily, doing interviews, networking as much as I could. It took three months before I I legitimately had an opportunity. So it it was, it was a struggle, not to mention the, the biases that I know Jason had talked about previously of just that reacceptance within the community Um, getting back in there and finding that you're not welcome in in certain places and and just trying to find your way again. So mentally was the largest obstacle, really, just not letting it beat you.
0: Can you tell me about some of those experiences that you encountered where you did not feel welcome? Absolutely. And and how Um, you felt about that?
2: Yeah, I will. uh, I'll try not to name names. I don't want to call out institutions, but there are the former church that I went to, uh, we've been going to the church for many, many years before my arrest, before my incarceration. During my incarceration, the, the pastors at the church came and visited me and were supportive. Um, when I got out, I had to, according to them, uh, their insurance company wouldn't allow for me to step onto church property unless I signed some agreement saying that I had to be escorted by someone at all times. And it couldn't be my wife. It had to be a male because I had to be escorted to the bathroom as well. I was not to be left alone, period, because God forbid I was a monster and my tentacles would grow or whatever it might be. But um, yeah, I showed up at a public event on a non-church day and was in no uncertain terms told to get off the premises right now. And I've never been back since, and I will never recommend anyone I know to go back to that organization. But they had been supportive all the way through the process until I got out. And then that, that support, that community was gone. Um, it, it was difficult. It, it was really difficult. Like I said, it it felt almost like it came out of nowhere because they were so supportive through the whole process until I was out. Um, Gym, something as simple as a gym membership. A a Christian Christian organization, very well-recognized name, um, told me I was no longer welcome on premises um, after I don't know why they felt the need to run a background check for a gym membership. But yeah, I was told never to step foot on premises with them again. And again, that was very frustrating, very frustrating and there's a lot of confusion and frustration behind that because it is, it's these organizations that you feel are supposed to be there to help and support you are the ones that are the most discriminating and the ones that try to hold you back.
0: It seems counterintuitive in many ways that at precisely the moment in time where it makes sense for society to embrace you back in, maybe with eyes wide open, uh, but you should be brought back into the fold is at, it seems at the precise time that they ostracize you further. And mm-hmm. then you go through a second period of ostracization. Sure. Um, but it just happens to be in the community instead of a correction facility.
2: Yeah, ab- absolutely. And that's, I mean, quite honestly, that's part of what feeds into that recidivism. If you get someone who's not mentally prepared for, for the difficulty you know, it's it's not easy. It's not impossible as long as you're prepared for what's going to come. But if you get someone that comes back out here and that's what they face and I've seen it happen to to friends and people that I was inside with. We were out here. We were outside of the institution and they, they gave up and they just said, forget this. And now they're back inside prison because it's it's easier and you're not you don't have to face that constant. I almost want to say hatred, but it's it's discrimination and it, it can be it can wear you down.
0: Your destination, though you may find from time to time complication. Would you mind just talking a little bit more about uh, RISE programs that you encountered and what they meant for you, what what you actually did, and, and how that changed you?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So when I started working with Rise, it was it was still Defy at that point. Uh, I had the opportunity to start working with Rise once I got out. I I left the institution right at the same time that they were starting in in OCC, so I didn't get the opportunity to work on the outside, so I was the the first person to start here on the outside in the community and really it gave me an opportunity to start working on a lot of the internal work. It really matched, paralleled, you know, almost in an eerie sense, a lot of the work that I was starting to do with my my coaching and, and getting into that and just trying to figure out who I am and learning those limiting beliefs and putting together your, your affirmations or, or declarations to counter those and just making sure that your mind is right your your psychology is 95% of not just the re-entry process, but a business. If you don't have the right mind and the right mindset going in, your, your business is going to fail. So that was the greatest help to me once I got out here is just reinforcing that foundation. Um, and then Number two, the, the community that RISE has provided for me is, is being able to get into the same room with business people of all shapes and sizes and, and uh, all different types of businesses and growth and, and opportunities and to sit down one-on-one with them and say, well, here's what I'm trying to do. And have them say, oh, yeah, I've, I've, I've encountered that before, so here's what you need to do to overcome that. Or hold on, let me give a pencil and write this down. Call this person next week, and they'll make sure that they can give you the answer. Just let them know that I told you to call. And really just starting that, that networking process to be able to get to where I'm at. And mentally it helps because it you remember that not everybody – has that bias against you. Not everybody is, you know, quote-unquote out to get you. There's a lot of people out there and there's more and more every day that are rooting for you and support you and really truly want to help. And and it gives you that opportunity to connect with with that base again. Yeah, absolutely.
0: How did you manage to set up reentry resources given all of this? all of these barriers to you being able to do that? Mm.
2: Well, starting your own business, that's there's not so many barriers with that because then you, you're taking charge of your own life. You're, you're not asking for someone else to hire you onto their organization and have to jump through their hoops and go through their background check and make sure that their insurance company will cover you, et cetera. You're, you're really taking charge of your own life which is what RISE is doing. And so to answer your question more directly, it's because of RISE really that I'm able to do this. Um, it's been three years in the making now that, that I've been pushing for this. I have one home uh, operating under this model. It's, it's my own home. So I, I used it as an opportunity to say, well, let me try this and see how this will work. Um, but Jeremy and and everybody at RISE have just been incredible with helping me through the process of saying, okay, here's where I'm at. Here's the obstacle that's in front of me. And I can just pick up the phone and, and call or send an email and they'll say, hold on, let me get a hold of somebody for you and I'll be right back to you. And they'll connect me to the next person who will say, oh, well, here's what you need to do. And that advances me to the next step, to the next step, to the next step.
0: What I want to do is ask each of you uh, the same question. So I'll start with you if that's Sure, okay. of course. I am interested in your lives and I'm interested in your lives from the context of, of when you were born, where you were born, how you grew up, everything you've experienced, and, and what's going on forward from that. But it, that question is a show each. So I'm just going to jump ahead and just say you are probably quite often thought of in terms of who you are in the context of what you've done wrong. And so I want to ask you the question about who you are and how you define yourself in the context of your own self-identity. Mm-hmm. How do you describe yourself?
2: Yeah, that's a, that's a tough question, and that's a, a lot of what led me to, to my work with the, the life and business coaching um, because I know that that's a, a serious question that we all have to try to figure out as you're re-entering. Um, first and foremost, I, I'm, I'm just a person. I am no different from you or or anyone else that may be listening to this as I've already talked about there's really no difference between us you know I am a powerful being with that connection to to my creator to God and knowing that whatever mistakes quote unquote I may have made in the past those are opportunities that I can use as a stepping stone I don't have to let them hold me back I can use that as an opportunity to learn and to grow and to take that step forward and now I have that opportunity to turn around and help others who are in that same position so that's that's who I am today
0: okay, it's the same question how do you self-identify how do you describe yourself
3: I guess I would describe myself as being just a regular person I mean I'm just human. I don't I can't that that is a hard question because I don't there's a lot of people that are like me. There's a lot of people that have the same goals as I do either being incarcerated or still being in the streets and there are some that are, you know, living through the poverty. There's some that are not living in po- poverty as, at all that are wealthy, but we I see it all. Developed in the same mindset. That's a hard question. (laughs) I don't see myself any different than anybody else. Yeah.
0: So Jason, how do you define yourself?
4: I used to answer this question by saying I'm a father and a husband and whatever role I was in. But it's deeper than that for me today. Like my roles aren't who I am. They're just part of what I do. Who I am at the core is a being that who has been woken up and who I know that I have a spirit within me today and I know that I have a creator and I know that um, above all else, I have a new heart and I have this relationship with of God that has woken me up to this whole new world around me. The world didn't change, I changed. And I have this view of... I have this view that's really centered in love, and it's. I feel like who I am at my core is a servant who is just trying to do his part to make this world a little better place. Mm-hmm.
1: I hope what you heard from these three gentlemen was um, you could see their hearts and their creativity and their desire to give back and to help others. And we have many people like David and Jason and Keith who are coming home and they have these invisible handcuffs that they wear where they have trouble with getting food stamps and vouchers for housing and employment. And they, they need that opportunity. They deserve that opportunity. You're going to get hard workers. You're going to get people that are going to go through a wall for your organization. And it's an, it's in our best invested self-interest if we do help them get those opportunities. Public safety improves. They're able to create wealth for themselves and their families. That cycle of generational incarceration is stopped in its tracks if parents can be out and parenting and so they have that role model at home where the kids aren't then following that same path, which we see so frequently in our program. So I admire these, these three men, and there's many more uh, like them coming out of our prison, out of our program, that can really enrich our community and add value to workplaces and to relationships. And so I just urge people to, to give them a chance, to give our RISE graduates a chance.
0: Well, I appreciate that, Jeremy. Thank you for saying that. And also thank you for, in the coming months, continuing this journey with, as you said, uh, David, Jason and Keith and everybody else that you're working with. And also for coming back in some months' time in the future as we continue to take this journey with you. And we'll catch up again in the next part of this series. And we'll talk about some of the other graduates from the program, some of the people that are investing themselves in businesses in our communities and and, and making our community a better place to be as well.
1: That'd be great, Stuart. Thank you for taking this journey with us.
0: live's radio show is supported by Humanities Nebraska, inspiring and enriching personal and public life by delivering opportunities to engage thoughtfully with history and culture. Learn more at humanitiesnebraska.org. Well, thank you for being here. I've been in conversation with Jeremy Bowman, David Kaczynski, Jason Kotas, and Keith Wheel. Thank you, gentlemen, so much for being here on the show today.
1: Thank you.
4: Smiling's okay.
0: (laughs) That's the end of this week's show. The magnificent Marion Fay helped produce the show. Lives is an executive production of Squish Talks. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week for more community, conversation, and the people that bring community to life.